Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderson and Pandora Sykes. And I have two juicy morsels of celebrity news for you. Coming in hot with the celebs, this is enormously unlike you. First and foremost, Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio are not only friends, because we speculated last week that they weren't, but they have been making ceramics together. (laughs) According to The Sun, the actors have forged source, a budding... Bro- I actually got it from something called artnet.com, which referenced London paper The Sun. The actors have forged a budding bromance over ceramics and sandwiches <laughs> since the movie wrapped. Brad's got his own sculpting studio at his house, and Leo loves coming over to use it, a source recently told The Sun. They sometimes hang out with Brad's artist pals, but other times it's just the two of them. Leo brings sandwiches over from their favourite place, Fat Sal's, and they spend their boys' nights creating art until the early hours. That sounds like the shittest stag do of all time. This sounds like something from The Onion. Um, I am pleased for you, though, because I know you were perturbed by my suggestion that they weren't brothers in arms. I am relieved. I am relieved about that. I don't know why. Two pretty blonde men. I just need to know that they're eating Reuben sandwiches. and Fat Sal's sounds good, though. I know. Is that in... Where is that? New York? No, I think that's probably LA, isn't it? Yeah, they don't live in New York, do they? But what Ooh. Fat Sal sounds, it's sort of pastrami, Emmental, CJ. It sounds building. very pastramery. Yeah, pastrami? it's pastrami e, I think. <laughs> anyway, if we could get the Sun subs to clarify that, that would be great. <laughs> In turn, I have some celebrity news for you. J-Lo walked the Versace catwalk in Milan last week in that green slash to the navel dress that she first wore in 2000 at the Grammys. And fun factoid here, that dress was the reason that Google Images were invented. Oh my God, no way. So many people were Googling that dress that Google thought to add Google Image Search. Can you imagine being like, hi, I'm Dolly Alderton and I am the reason that Google Image Search was invented? It's not going to be on your tombstone, is it? No way. I also think there's a there's a lot of responsibility that dress has to burden for, and for, such, you, you a, still, for such a kind of insubstantial dress. But you still feel as well the sort of reverberations of it with the worst sarongs I've ever seen. Every summer you see sarongs in that fabric. I haven't seen a sarong for years. Oh, I think it's the dress that launched a thousand shitty sarongs. It's probably time for the sarong to come back, David Beckham. Uh, J-Lo's now 50. And she looks... God, she looks amazing. Exceptional on the runway. Uh, She was the epitome of the verb sachet, um, as she did 17 years ago when she first wore it. Do you know one thing that really ruined that cultural moment for me, which leads me on to my second piece of brilliant celebrity news, is I saw it online, obviously all my fashion friends were chomping at the bit to share their 
Instagram story of it uh, with a video from the catwalk. And all you saw as she walked down that catwalk was people's smartphones just waving in front of her face. <laughs> it's quite, it also, it's it really, kind of I thought it was so depressing. I don't go to very many shows anymore, but I went to three last weekend, London Fashion Week, and the woman next to me, to be fair, she did apologise at one point, she was filming, and it was like, I was just watching her phone. Like, you I couldn't see anything. It's, I just found her arm it like, like, Yeah, I know, so, it's ridiculous. But also, how weird for J-Lo walking down the cat I think this as well when brides and grooms walk out of the church how weird that they do that walk and all they will see is not the smiling faces of their loved ones is when you look at those pictures you just see hundreds of people waving their fucking iPhones in their face but anyway so my other piece of celebrity news uh, that I'm very excited about is that Madonna has banned fans from using their phones during her Madame X tour good for her I really do think good for her. She kicked off her 92-day run at the Brooklyn Academy of Music on Tuesday. And while standing in line, ticket holders noticed signs explaining that mobiles had to be locked away in special cases and could only be opened in designated areas throughout the duration of the concert. If attendees were found using their phones while she was on the stage, their devices would reportedly be confiscated by stadium staff. Apparently, concert goers were informed about the ban via email prior to the show. I am so glad that she's done this and it is my like room 101 number one I think is going to a gig and everyone filming it. What the fuck are they going to do with those films? Those grainy endless films of whole songs like as if they're going to just sit on the bus and watch them. The cynic in me, though, says it's a 92-date run. I don't think she wants it being spoiled extensively on social media for people that have booked oh, tickets. Oh, no, do you think it's that? I think it's absolutely as much that as it is about her wanting people to enjoy the holistic experience of being at Madonna's show. Rihanna did it at her fashion show in New York a couple of weeks ago um, because Amazon are streaming her savage for Fenty fashion show as a shoppable visual event, and she didn't want any spoilers via social uh, you can watch it on Amazon Prime now Dolly I know you'll be chomping at the bit I can't think of anything I'd like to watch less actually <laughs> also this week Mark Ronson made an extraordinary amount of headlines after coming out as sapiosexual on Good Morning Britain what's a sapiosexual means you're attracted to intelligence first and beauty second first of all also what was Mark Ronson doing on Good Morning Britain Look, you always diss Good Morning Britain as if it's not a reputable news outlet. They have a lot of, um, sometimes even A-list, a lot of uh, probably quite B-list, sometimes C-list, but, you know, leading celebrity guests. I think that's insane. And basically, I think the fact that being attracted to someone's personality is now so radical, it needs a sort of syndrome name, really marks the end of the fucking world, I think. It made me laugh because... A, his girlfriends and wives have hardly been dogs. <laughs> B, it's not exactly unusual to be attracted to brains first, as you say. Certainly not newsworthy. But C, he only actually came out after they asked him what we thought. So if you read the headlines, it sounds like he... Bra- they even use the word, like, bravely. And then you watch bravely. it. And he's asked what he thinks of the previous section on Good Morning Britain, which is about sapiosexuality. And he's oh, asked if he would right. identify. And he says quite mildly, even lethargically... But yeah, yeah, he probably would. Okay, sorry, I <laughs> take I also, that back. No, but I also agree with 
<clears throat> you wouldn't know that though if you saw the headlines. I also yeah. agree with you. Do we really need a word for everything? And I don't say that to decry sexual identity or gender identity. It's so important that we have myriad ways of people being able to identify now. Obviously, sapiosexuality should not be conflated with other forms of gender and sexual identity. There are a few people who have um, criticised the language of him coming out um, as sapiosexual because obviously it sounds... Um, it gives it a weight that perhaps this conversation does not deserve. But sapiosexuals does seem almost like satire. Anyway, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge scooped up three awards for Fleabag at the Emmys last night. Good for her. Very uh, well deserved. She, she gave a really lovely... Sorry, um, that sounded so much like I was the headmaster giving out a, pr- a prize giving. Good for her. Very well deserved. <laughs> Sorry, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, for sounding so patronising if you listen to that. Which I know you don't. She gave a very funny acceptance speech as well. It's just really wonderful that, uh, to know and reassuring that a um, dirty, pervy, angry, uh, messed up woman can make it to the Emmys. So uh, thank you so much. Speaking of telly, RuPaul's Drag Race has come to the UK and Naked Attraction is back. Did you ever watch Naked Attraction? I've never watched either. I can't. I actually really want to watch RuPaul's Drag Race because that has the most enormous and varied viewership um but naked attraction i haven't ever watched i don't know if i i don't know if i can but it's back which is interesting proving that sapiosexuality is not perhaps the leading (laughs) the leading way that people are so that's where they show people's naked genitalia and then you decide. So based the box on their opens genitalia. and a flaccid willy pops out. And, right. and the rest of the man as well. But everyone should just be on Tinder because that's what Tinder Step by is. step. Step by step? Yeah. Oh, so it's like a peep show, like yeah. a striptease. Do you see the willy first? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Right. I can't see my. This is not a visual medium, but I'm looking faintly disgusted. Can I say something about willies quickly? I think. You ask for permission, like. <laughs> I that think. That would stop you. That TV producers think that there are certain things that exist in everyday life that don't really exist well Dolly you know plenty of them tell me do they think <laughs> so I think that like TV producers thinks that like like friends with secrets is a thing or like troublesome exes and something that you read about quite a lot I think or you see on TV are like women who are obsessed with cocks I just don't know that many women that are that bothered by like a specific type of cock. Do you know I what think, I mean? I think my mum's going to enjoy this bit the most. <laughs> so show. Hi, Nikki. <laughs> anyway, no, I don't think I, I don't think I've got the stomach for naked attraction either. In less lovely news, football hate crime is up by forty-seven percent in the last year. I am staggered by this. I asked my husband, who's a massive football fan, but also works at a football content agency, so is really in the hub of it. And he had no idea as to why. We did ask our the Hilo's resident um, football expert, CJ, and he suggested that it's um, bloody old social media and the mob mentality and that there's always such a strong thread of racism as well. Yeah, and, and that you can kind of disappear within a kind of mass environment. Your aggressive behaviour somehow can, can still, become anonymous or something. It's odd that it's in the last year. Do you know what I mean? Of all mm. the years... 
can't remember what's happened up until this year now. But I, I'm just surprised that this this has been the year in particular. Um, 200,000 people are stranded on their holly bobs because Thomas Cook has crashed. I was oddly sad about this because I feel like Thomas Cook is such a... Reliable. A heritage Yeah, totally. It's the world's largest travel company, or was. It's been here for 178 years, so it really is the end of an era. Um, Some people might think it's a first world problem being stuck on holiday, but I think what people never think about when you talk about holidays is that people getting stuck abroad... Um, they might have saved for years for that holiday. Yeah, of course. And they might be paid or they might be paid by the hour and will lose work um, if they can't get back, which means they can't pay their bills. Or they have care work obligations, which means someone vulnerable is being left alone. Um, And I also think it's really sad because 21,000 people have now lost their jobs. That's how many people were employed Mm. by Thomas Cook. I wonder why that is. That must be dawn of the internet and Skyscanner and, yeah. People just book direct. Yeah. You don't need to go through an agency and pay that fee because hotelbooking.com offer, like, their own discounts now. Yeah. Um, everyone, know, you, you know, you, you can just Google it and do it directly, can't you? Yeah. So it does feel quite antiquated now to book through a mm. travel agent. Mm. And Justin Trudeau has apologised for being pictured in blackface after three images of him emerged from the early 90s and noughties were revealed. He's currently campaigning for re-election in Canada. So it's probably quite likely the pictures have been released strategically as well. Mm. What's in the mailbag this week, doll? The overwhelming majority of emails this week were from listeners who said that, like me, they thought they had a podcast addiction. You are not the only podcast. So many people tweeted both the High Lows Twitter and me about this. One tweet that made me laugh was a girl that said her and her boyfriend even listened to short blasts of podcasts separately while brushing their teeth (laughs) in an attempt to get through all the episodes they wanted to listen to that week. It's all part of this cultural saturation that I'm really interested in, where even leisure time has become work as we struggle to keep up with mixed media but podcast addiction seems to have been very helpful and very useful for some of our listeners one said podcasts have helped with her mental health if my thoughts aren't otherwise occupied they can very frequently run into a dangerous space with podcasts i can put off my worst feelings and deal with them in a safe space with my therapist Another said they've helped her deal with grief. I've been a podcast addict since August last year when my mother died suddenly. I was desperate to escape my thoughts in the first few days and had always relied on plugging into a playlist to do so, usually titled something painfully cringeworthy like Newbies 2018 or Chilled, but I just could not bear a single melody. My friend suggested I try podcasts and the first she suggested was the Hilo. I felt steadied and calm with these voices to accompany me as I grappled with this new world without mum. That actually makes me want to cry. I'm so sorry for your loss and I'm so glad our witterings helped even an iota. Also, totally with you on that chilled Spotify list. Never not on that one. Another said she looks forward to podcasts more than seeing her children. Amazing. Which I love. (laughs) And finally, we have a listener who realised she had a pod problem when she found herself baffled by an elderly fellow passenger on a long flight who just sat quietly with her thoughts. It was bizarre to me. Bizarre in that this shouldn't be abnormal. Post the experience, I decided my New Year's resolutions would be to try to spend more time with my thoughts and at the very least, absorb one thing at a time. Still an uphill battle, but getting better. And someone asked about your bracelets, Pandora, our third podcast host. She wants to know who jangles. It's me. I'm so sorry. That's not the first missive we've had about them. They're really painful to get off, uh, but I am aware of the tinkling. What have you been reading, watching, listening to this week, Panda? I've been really enjoying a slightly unusual 
format of a show called State of the Union, which is on BBC iPlayer. And it's 10 episodes of 10 minute long drama written by Nick Hornby, directed by Stephen Frears, starring wow. Chris O'Dowd and Rosamund Pike. So cool. Star studded. And they play Tom and Louise, who are a couple. Um, who have been married for 15 years and are now in the midst of marital disharmony because Louise has had an affair. Of course, that's not the only reason that they're in this situation. And those 10-minute episodes are filmed exclusively in the pub, her with her white wine, him with his pint, before they go to the marriage counsellor. So the idea, I suppose, is that they do their sort of best counselling yeah. not in there and that's all the show is that's all the show is god what confident writing 10 episodes of that I slightly feel like it might have worked better as a podcast really I'd have loved it as a podcast or a radio play um, just because in that I'm trying to think of that there was a film where was it called like the dinner party where there were four famous actors and it was all around one dinner party and they had met through their children. Oh, I can't think what it is. It's um, very difficult to do that sort of that sort of storytelling. I think it's really good, and I would love you to. I'd love watch to watch it. that. Um, it, you know, it's brilliantly written, and I think it's really interesting, and I love the concept. Um, but I just, as you say, not moving. I mean, you see them come in. Mm. And then you see them leave the pub and that's where the episode ends. Mm. Uh, But it's a really fun idea and it's really nice that they're ten minutes long. Mm. Um, Lucy Mangan, writing for The Guardian, suggested that even though it's so tempting to binge on it because it's only a hundred minutes to the entire series, um, they're so rich um, that you should really eke them out. I also love that concept because every couple that I know who has done couples therapy or couples counselling has said it's actually not the advice and the guidance that you get in the room that is the most talk about helpful and healing. It's it's the commitment to show up and make it work. Mm. That's the most important part of it, is that you're both there committed to making a change together. I've also been really enjoying Sally Hughes' podcast, which is called The Beauty Podcast with Sally Hughes. Now, this may surprise you, Dolly, because I am so disinterested in beauty know nothing about beauty mm. probably still using the same mascara from like six years ago I've never been remotely interested in beauty but See, I love beauty yeah you do you do I watch your... Sally Hughes' videos over and over again I love my them. sister's obsessed with beauty um, videos she watched a lot of Caroline Hirons yeah I have to of... say Sally Hughes I've been watching for years I think she is the best best beauty journalist particularly her video content well that I I really enjoy um some beauty writers as I said not because I'm interested in beauty because I'm really not and I don't actually make many purchases when I read about them but it's just the same as any writing when someone um writes really thoughtfully and really kind of probes their subject matter and writes about it intelligently then it's enjoyable anything yeah. can be made good by good conversation and uh, good storytelling it's why I also enjoy India Nights in Sunday Times and Funmi Fettos in The Observer. Yeah, because she's just a fantastic journalist. The episode that I uh, wanted to recommend in particular is one that she did with Juno Dawson, previous guest of the Hilo, about the role that makeup played in Juno's transition into a woman. Both of them are so eloquent and a real joy to listen to. They've got great radio voices. Um, and I loved how anecdotal and granular. 
Juno is. She talks about how when she was first transitioning, the beauty trends at the time in 2014 uh, really didn't serve her well. Contouring was really big. Mm. So she was like, I was literally going to like coffee granules, you know, and and trying to sculpt my face. And also at the time, millennial pink was really trendy. So mm. she, bought, she, said, she said she bought this whole wardrobe of like blush pink clothes, which really didn't suit her. And she talks about how Sally and her first met um, at, I think it was the Glamour Awards. And Sally sorted her out with a makeup artist the next year. And Juno was just so enthralled um, by the whole process and found it kind of so enjoyable Uh, discovering that world and Sally was so thrilled to have been a part of that discovery for her but it also goes um, a lot deeper than that Juno talks about trans privilege passing privilege she calls it that's what it's referred to in the LGBT community about the advantages of being slim and white when you are transitioning um, and that she got her surgery for free uh, that when someone calls her beautiful on Instagram she's quick to remind them that it took a lot of work And to be clear, she isn't saying that every trans woman has or wants to have facial feminization surgery. Mm. It it was a choice that she took Mm -hmm. and that she's really happy with. And she talks now, which I found really interesting, about how she's wanting to wear less makeup. For her, that feels like she's completed her journey. Because at the beginning, she said she wore a lot of makeup. It was her signal to the world pre-surgery to try and see her as a woman she said she said that that makeup said even if you don't think I look like a woman even if my mask isn't working can you see that I'm trying here that this is my signal that I just want you to call me miss can you do that for me yeah whereas now she feels like um she wants to go without it and not be misgendered and that to her will feel like um what makes her feel content mm. I did have that opportunity and not all trans people do and there is a bit of a chasm unfortunately between trans people who can afford access because none of this was on the NHS it was all private and unfortunately people who can't access that and there is a bit of a divide and we also know that trans people might struggle to find employment yes because just the horror of you know I was very again a different kind of privilege was working in the liberal liberal lovely arts where nobody bat an eyelid. In fact, I was welcomed to meetings and creative things. So, you know, I never had to work on a counter in a supermarket as a trans woman, which I think would be really, really challenging. And I don't know if I would have had the confidence or strength to do that. And so it is important to me that I am really honest that, you know, if, you know, I get these people all down my Instagram saying, oh my God, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't come for free. Yeah. And it is not a filter. It's a great episode and it's a really interesting podcast, um, full stop, especially if you are interested in beauty because there's a lot of technical stuff too. Have you read anything good this week? I am reading Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, which is the new book by the American thinker and... Imagine being described as a thinker. <laughs> the American thinker and New York... And I don't even say that sarcastically. Look, he's an American no. thinker. Actually, he's, he's thinker. not. He's a Canadian thinker. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry to my Canadian listeners, in particular my friend Monica. I'm your Canadian listener. You're my Canadian co-host, <laughs> who I'm shortly going to a therapy session with. Um, Malcolm Gladwell is revered for his theories that he comes up with about... his kind of part literary criticism, part pop culture and his basically his theories about the way we live our lives um talking to strangers is about the truth default who calls it which is basically that humans even when presented with vast amounts of evidence to the contrary will always believe that someone's telling the truth first Mm -hmm. and that 
that's a great thing overall because society could not run on suspicion. Yes. That um, that it's also been the cause for some epically terrible stuff in history like Neville Chamberlain meeting Hitler and thinking he was a really nice man and believing mm. that everything he said was true. Mm. Um, and then, of course, he declared war. Um, Talking to Strangers is no blink, which is um, his really famous one from, I think it was 2005, which is riveting anyone who hasn't read it I really recommend it they're so easy to read his books as well it's about how we make up our mind in the first two seconds natural intuition that he calls thin slicing uh, but we often persuade ourselves out of this natural intuition so you have that moment where you think something but then your kind of rational thought process comes in and you often rationalise yourself out of it mm. and he uses this example of um, these Greek statues that in the first two seconds that every art historian saw them or museum curator or anyone, they thought those are fake. But then they rationalise out of it. So much money had been paid for them, people had been so excited by them, um, but they were fake. And he uses lots of anecdotes and stories like that with his um, theories. Another really good one is The Tipping Point, which is about how brand whispering can alter how consumers think of that brand's products. And that's from way back in 2000, I think, but it really altered the way people talked about brand marketing. He's really good at pattern recognition basically and at naming theories and um concepts and i have to say i find it really boring when he's mauled by critics for being faux intellectual um i wish someone would call me faux intellectual just so that you could get the intellectual in yeah. rather than just faux <laughs> yeah exactly i mean he it doesn't matter much he's sold millions of books he's never not on a bestseller list he's got three million podcast listeners a week for you know revisionist history a brilliant podcast that has just reminded me that i must listen to more um but i also think that just says so much about the way we assess literature that he can't be appraised for having these like almost household name theories exactly it's because he's had mass commercial success and i basically feel like we're just all drowning in an ocean of tossers at the moment online that's your takeaway for this week this year don't you think though that's so stupid to think that someone can't be that someone has named something what he's he said in an interview i think it was with the new york times this is really true that journalists sort of don't really like when one of their kind gets really successful. Totally and utterly agree with that. So a lot of the people reviewing him were, you know, they're journalists. Mm. Um, But he also said it doesn't really, you know, matter. I would take it further. I think it's writers in general. Writers don't like other writers well. Yeah, I think we're the worst. And then when you put us, when you intersect that with Twitter culture. I am actually going to put myself apart from that. I love other writers writing. I my writing wouldn't exist without other writers writing. Um, you can mostly rely on me for support. And if I don't like it, I wouldn't say so anyway. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'd, I'd put myself apart from that. But yeah, I do agree with you. Um, he tracks through lots of, with the um, Talking to Strangers, he tracks through lots of recent kind of news stories and cases, some more persuasive than others. Amanda Knox, he talks about how her being accused of Meredith Kircher's murder was an example of people reading her quite strange behaviour when Meredith was murdered as the truth of what happened ergo she was guilty Mm. Um, when actually he said the truth is that it was you know completely improbable Um, I don't know if it's just because I was at Leeds University at the time and Meredith was a Leeds student yeah that I have um, I don't know I almost find anything 
You always get a bit weird when we talk about Amanda. Uh, yeah, I don't. The way he talked about it was that it was more cut and dried than I felt like it was. Yes, yeah, and I, I do understand. And that, that Amanda was um, misunderstood, kind of, and naive. And that, to me, is as dangerous as calling her like a sex vixen. Yeah. I don't think she was a sex vixen. I don't think she was an ingenue. I think it's more complicated than that. And it felt like there was some oversimplification there that I wasn't really comfortable with. Yeah, yeah. I'd also say he does it a little bit with Brock Turner as well, uh, which is a pertinent time for this book to come out because Chanel Miller's book is coming out soon, as you discussed last week. He talks about the truth-warping effect of alcohol. And one quite cross-guardian commentator, Stephen Poole, said he sort of made it sound like the only reason that the Brock Turner Chanel Miller sexual assault case happened is because of alcohol. Um, mm. I don't think he does do that. Um, and I think this is the problem. And I, and I admire him for not shying away from taking like really overwritten, over-dialogued news stories and applying them to, you know, something completely different. Um, but I think it's harder because you do, you know, you come with your own preconceived thoughts about those stories as yeah. I did for example the story I enjoyed the most is one about the Queen of Cuba um, Annabelle and Montez who was a Cuban spy in the DIA which uh, works alongside the CIA uh, in American security um, she was one of the most long term and uh, dangerous Cuban spies that America had ever had mm. but people just couldn't believe that she could be guilty of anything because she had been so successful and so diligent and was so kind of winsome. Mm. Um, and so every time a counterintelligence officer would think that something was up, they would just go, no, it can't be her. So I found stories like that yeah. um, easier to get into because I didn't come with any preconceived notions. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think it's a really great book to read. And if you're interested in truth, um, it's obviously a big preoccupation at the moment truth and fake news then uh abby ellen's book duped is brilliant about i suppose you could call it the truth default she almost marries this man who um came out last year uh, i think i discussed it on the highlight actually i she think you did almost yeah. marries this man who says that he's like you know he's been like an army doctor and he's very high up in the military and he's all these things and it's like complete rubbish and she uses that as a kind of hook to talk about the myriad ways that we are that pathological liars exist really and how they've existed through history because mm. often there's this idea that they've like only just arrived but um actually it used to be much more common for people to maintain whole separate families 50 years ago than it yes, is now yeah thanks to the internet it's probably much harder yeah to secretly get married and have new little families than it was that malcolm gladwell book sounds like a great read I think his work is really interesting for the time we're living in and it's particularly interesting to the kind of um, things that I'm interested in mm. and that I'm writing at the moment. So, yeah, I really recommend it. And also, guess what, folks? You don't have to agree with all of it and you can still enjoy it. Totally, exactly, exactly. I, You know, I didn't agree with everything in it and I haven't, like, tossed the book into my non-existent yeah. fire. Yeah. Doll, what have you been enjoying this week? I loved Alexis Petridis's piece on Back to Black for The Guardian and why it's the greatest album of the 21st century thus far which well he obviously puts that forward as a kind of persuasive theory I think The Guardian did a kind of rundown of the, the, the best albums so far of the, 20, of the uh, 21st century I was going to say is it an anniversary for that album? yeah and then and then no it's not an anniversary but that came out as mm-hmm. number one which personally I totally agree with yeah um, and lots of people online I saw agree with that 
as a theory too. It's a fascinating, very well-researched piece that really articulates exactly what is so powerful and moving and seminal about that album and unique about that album. And he talks about the kind of transformation from uh, her first album, Frank, both as a woman and an artist with her kind of with her emotional life, with her musical stylings, with her personal style and her personal life, her various demons, that kind of transition. And those were her only two albums, which is just so sad. Do you think that it, it, that any of this is to do with the fact that she did die so young and that these are her only two albums? Do you think that there is... Personally, I don't think so. I remember at the time feeling that the way people were responding to Back to Black in real time, mm, mm. was as if it were a classic already. It, yeah, I agree with that. I, I remember it feeling different to any other album, certainly of my time in young adulthood. And he goes into the kind of myriad influences on that album and all the different inspirations that kind of mesh together so elegantly that made it such a unique and totally timeless sound and he also talks about the production process the band that she worked with which was really interesting the producers mark ronson the lyrics the very sort of special vocal styling it's just a really interesting piece and and, an utterly gorgeous piece of music journalism and it's the first time because obviously there was that beautiful film amy that really looked at her as a woman and as an artist, but this is the first time that I've read something so specific to Back to Black. And I just love that album so much. And it's so evocative. You just want to listen to it from track to track. And you can't believe it's only 35 minutes, that whole album. Like, the extent of that woman's genius that because no one really talks about Frank or Love Frank. Frank was almost like the prototype album. Well, not even prototype album, because he says in the piece that she said she didn't even have Frank in her house. That's how kind of disconnected she felt from that album. And he said that that album really was kind of capitalising on this kind of easy listening jazz revival that was happening in the mid-noughties with kind of Nora Jones and, and Jamie Cullum and Michael Bublé. Um, but 35 minutes. It's kind of insane when you think about it that she will be known as one of the most important artists of all time, I think, and that's from just over half an hour. And it's just so sad to think of if she had been able to live all the other work that she might have been able to give us. I just wanted to quote from it, because as I said, I found the writing utterly beautiful. Understandably, everyone went on about Winehouse's voice. It was a snappy, ragged, extraordinarily expressive contralto that still carried something of the nasal North London drawl of her speaking voice, perfect for conveying both heartbreak and sass. It dispensed with the usual firework display theatrics of the modern soul diva in favour of an idiosyncratic, apparently untutored approach to phrasing that lent everything she sang a directness and immediacy, set against the contemporary backdrop of melismatic oversinging and arch indie rock. Back to Black offered a reminder of what it sounded like to really mean it. I also 
loved a very funny and clever piece in the London Review of Books about the psychological effect of living with houseplants <laughs> um, by Stephanie Bishop. And it's just such a neat, perfect look at what we project onto our plants. Because I think there really is this kind of trend for plant maintenance now in the home that's felt like it's kind of come about in the last half decade but there's also a theory as well on it that plant uh, that the existence of plants in your living and working space make you happier because mm. there's a co-work space that off the top of my head i can't remember i don't think it's a we work mm. in east london which is all all of them are made of glass all the offices i've been right, there yeah and there's a masses of plants everywhere so yeah. part of your fee that you pay per month is for someone to maintain all these plants oh i see it's kind of quite a, it's like part of that new tech culture well i mean it does make sense when you what think i mean about... is the new tech culture of trying to repair what they broke in terms oh, of yeah, like the yeah, work-life yeah. So, balance god that's so true yeah but it makes sense when you think about you know the effect of nature and nature the worm. exactly nature and the worm nature on the human brain um but the thing i found interesting about it because i am a plant keeper and i started buying plants and filling my house with plants at a period of my life where i decided to sort of for want of a less soap opera sort of phrase turn my life around <laughs> when I was about 27 I kind of made some big changes in my life and I ushered all these plants into my house and it really did feel like these plants became this kind of metaphor for how I decided to start looking after myself and now I still have plants from that time that I bought age 27 and I feel so absurdly profoundly connected to them because they act to me as a metaphor of this is proof that I, I was able to look after myself in a time where I felt like I might never be able to look after myself and be happy. And I've never read someone kind of articulate that sort of, let's face it, neuroses and madness um, like, like uh, Stephanie Bishop has done in this piece. I wanted to read a bit from it. The thoughts I direct to the plant are the same thoughts I direct to myself, which are the thoughts I realised that my mother directed to me. You don't need to eat yet. You can't possibly still be thirsty. How can you be tired already? Surely you can do better than that. Both my husband and I humanise our houseplants. We anthropomorphise them. And because of this, I look at the living plant and think it should make its livingness go a little further, stretch it out, test it, live harder on less, strive to be upright. And each time I do this, I feel myself dehumanised little by little more. I would like not to be this kind of person, this person who refuses to give water when water is so clearly needed. But it runs in the family, this failure to keep houseplants alive. My mother cannot do it either, and now I wonder how her mother spoke to her, which might have been the same, but could have been different, or perhaps it was just split somehow because I remember my grandmother tending a patio of brilliantly flowering impatiens, red and orange and hot pink, and on her coffee table there was always a vase of deeply perfumed roses that she had grown herself. Perhaps she told her daughter, my mother, to hurry on now and not bother her, and sought her livingness out on her own, because she had houseplants to water." I just think what a clever piece to kind of thread that Freudian analysis through something that's so domestic and everyday. Also, I will not mention, Pandora, the fact that you had a fig tree <laughs> that I was very worried about every time I came round. I was like plant social services. The only reason it is now as healthy as it is is because someone else took it upon themselves <laughs> to save it. So that's the only reason it's green again. 
Um, yeah, I have the opposite problem to you. I definitely don't outsource my emotional health to my plants. <laughs> Probably the most millennial phrase we've ever said on the <laughs> Finally, I have the most beautiful piece of writing to share with you that took my breath away uh, from something called The Red Hand Files, which is a subscriber newsletter from the musician Nick Cave, in which his fans, I think he set it up last year, a couple of years ago, and it's a subscriber email list where fans can ask him a question and he responds directly to them in a published letter that lands in your inbox. I mentioned it on the high low last year. Some of you may remember when he wrote a beautiful letter in response to a fan um, who was grieving from the loss of yes, someone they loved. I and remember. It was about his son, Arthur, um, who died when he was a teenager and about the role of... Um, grief and love and it went viral just as a beautiful Mm. piece of writing Mm. and actually um I've been asked a lot recently about writing to recommend when someone is grieving and loads of suggestions were given to me um that I then doled out and I forgot to add this one Mm. so the red hand files letter from Nick Cave it would have been 2018 um about grief he only does one a month so it shouldn't be too hard to find anyway doll which one did you love so the one that I loved, it was, it's the most recent one and it's such an intimate, wonderful and precious part of the internet, I think. And the most recent question is one that I've asked so many times in my life and one that people I love have often asked me and I've not known how to respond. I don't want to say any more about it because I feel like I can't analyse it or describe it or do it any justice so I would just like to read it in full because I think our listeners will love it and you Pandora will love it as much as I did. How long will I be alone? Dear Lily, I am sorry I have taken so long to answer this question. You sent it to the Red Hand Files almost nine months ago and I have carried it with me all this time wanting to answer but never quite knowing how. I think this little question has stayed with me, not just because of the lovely beat of pathos in it, but also because of its extraordinary existential reach. It seemed that it spoke to all of us, yet it felt simply beyond me to answer. Alone and loneliness are two very different things, of course. I spend much of my time alone. I always have. I've learnt that being alone, as bereft as it perhaps feels to some, is busy with meaning and disclosure. For me, it's an essential place that intensifies the essence of oneself in all its rampant need. It is the site of demons and sudden angels and raw truths, a quiet, haunted place and a place of unforeseen understandings, a place of unmasking and unveiling. It can be industrious or melancholic or frightening, sometimes all at the same time, yet within it there is a feeling of a latent promise that holds great power, like Jesus praying alone in the garden or Mary Magdalene alone at the mouth of Christ's tomb. Aloneness holds moments that tremble on the brink of revelation and great change. And then there is loneliness, which is aloneness without choice, an enforced condition that yearns for recognition, to be seen and to be heard. This brave and unguarded admission appears to be the aching heart of your question. As I sat on the plane travelling to Reykjavik for the last show of my In Conversation tour, I felt suddenly that there was something I could say to you. Having spent much time travelling on this tour alone, it struck me that your question didn't have to be answered but simply acknowledged that to reach out to you as you reached out to me could in itself be the answer and perhaps a remedy. To say to you, you are not alone, we are here, and that we, a multitude, are thinking of you. Love, Nick. I think that's so true. 
I think the difference between being alone and being lonely is really key mm. and often misunderstood. Mm. Um, and also just how important it can be sometimes for someone to just say, I see your sense of loneliness and you are not alone because I see it. And for someone to say, I don't have an answer. Mm. That, I think, is also really powerful. Mm. Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa. Secret Spa brings beauty treatments to the home. Avoid the schlep to the salon and put London's best beauty and massage therapists straight to your home, hotel or workplace through Secret Spa's mobile app. I have a confession to make. Go on. I used Secret Spa last night. Sunday night massage in the comfort of my own bedroom. I thought you seemed a bit overly relaxed today. I'm deeply envious snuffling through my revolting cold. You do look <laughs> the epitome of health and relaxation. Oh, thank you. It was so, so good. There was a lot of deep tissue elbow action. Oh, yeah. I'm unknotting my crunchy old back. <laughs> it was so, so good. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty and wellness treatments, including massage, manicures, waxing, spray tan, lashes and brows. There's no need to worry about travelling home after a relaxing massage or facial that's left you red-faced or worry about smudging your toenails. Personally, I literally just rolled straight into bed yesterday afterwards. And unlike a salon, you can book out-of-hours appointments from 7 in the morning to 10 in the evening so you can squeeze your beauty treatments in before, during or after work around your busy day. As a mother to a toddler, I cannot describe how convenient this is. I virtually never go to a salon anymore. If I'm ever going to have a pedicure or treat myself to a massage then I do it at 7.30pm at home for the same price if not frequently cheaper than actually going to a salon. The quality of therapists is consistently excellent because Secret Spa puts such effort into finding the very best after rigorous rounds of assessment. I can attest that my massage therapist was utterly brilliant last night. Prices start at £35 and to enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking download the Secret Spa app or visit secretspa.co.uk and use the code HILO at checkout. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. Debrett's The Etiquette Authority has teamed up with Facebook to create a guide to digital messaging that includes advice for navigating ghosting, oversharing and group chats. I'm obsessed with this story. Debrett's, for anyone that doesn't know, is a really fusty 250-year-old institution which compiles a £450 book per year called Peerage and Baronetage. Oh my god, I'd never even heard of it. The fact that Debrett's this oldie-woldy British company, which you sort of can't believe is still going, let alone making a profit, has teamed up with hoodie-wearing, Silicon (laughs) Valley-shaping Facebook. It's hilarious. I can't decide who hoodwinked who. (laughs) That was like... A weird, drunken decision at a networking dinner, surely. <laughs> it's the only thing that comes out that of networking. both parties couldn't back out of. <laughs> the guide was created using research conducted by a messenger from Facebook, which found that 69% of people think that rules of etiquette should be applied to digital conversations. A statement from inside the guide explains that it is intended to help navigate the etiquette of messaging with the timeless values of courtesy and consideration, whether chatting with friends, family, co-workers or love interests. An example of some of the guide's tips are on a group chat, sending several messages at a time looks domineering and can be confusing for other members playing catch up on the conversation. If someone leaves their phone unattended for a few minutes only to return to 27 new messages, it's hard to resist checking what all the excitement is about. 
Couldn't agree more. Send one bulk message, please. And here's one I wish everyone would abide by. Unless a message is urgent, wait at least a day before chasing someone for a reply. Bugging someone for a response after only a few hours is inconsiderate and puts the other person on the defensive. I couldn't agree more with that. It's dull having to chase someone when you need an answer, but so rarely is that chasing urgent to do with urgent and yeah. certainly not within 24 hours unless someone's losing a leg i really like this idea in theory i think it's very strange that it's fallen on the shoulders of debrets as a job as it feels like quite an incongruous organization to be sorting out the breakdown of communication online but i've basically spent the last year in cycles of feeling sort of fine about being online and communicating online and then having bouts where i really properly do consider removing myself completely from it and most people I know in the last year have been in the same place whilst I do find it funny that Facebook had to go to Debrett's for this I do think digital etiquette is a really valuable conversation Um, there's actually a lot to be found on it as well I really like Victoria Turk's book digital etiquette and she has a column every week in Grazia too which I really enjoy I think it's quite strange that we assume a brand new mode of conversation that humankind's never used before and that probably really challenges us cognitively and psychologically in ways we haven't been before. Yes. It's just expected to be native adopters. Yes, yes, I think that's true. I think it should be taught in schools. A really pertinent example that I often think of is the NSPCC's Internet Matters campaign, where you have a young boy going hesitantly, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And it sort of peters out because obviously it's just not true, not Mm. with the advent of written communication Mm. by the internet. Not everyone is on board with the guide. Gwendolyn Smith wrote a piece for iNews titled Only a Sociopath Would Need Debrett's Guide to Digital (laughs) Etiquette, in which she said, aside from its head-clutching obviousness, the guide is also a missed opportunity. In focusing on rudimentary lessons, no ghosting or ignoring someone's messages, check for typos, it overlooks the aspects of online interaction we actually need advice on. She then specifically refers to the Hindu WhatsApp group, which I'm sure we're all very familiar with if we're over the age of 27, and that kind of passive-aggressive function on Gmail that suddenly popped up that reminds you to follow up with someone when you haven't replied to them for three days. I don't have that. That's because you bloody follow up so quickly. No, I've definitely got emails older than uh, older than three days. It's a little orange thing that comes up. Because I'm not... I don't, actually. I, only, I now reply to non-urgent emails once a week. Maybe I've deactivated it. Lucky I need me. to do that. It's like it's like a little orange letters that come up that says that kind of nudges you. No, no nudges. I think I agree with her. I think I agree with this idea that we are all too contactable and I think we have lost a sense of appropriateness when it comes to communicating with people that we either know or don't know or we work with. And how often we should contact them, when we should follow up, the appropriate hours in which to follow up, how quickly we should hear back from them when it's not an emergency. I think that does need to be reassessed. I remember growing up at home with a landline that there were very specific rules from my mum and dad about about the landline, about when you call, how often you call, how long you allow it to ring out. You don't call before 10am. You don't ever call after 10pm. And I feel like the spirit of the landline rules need to be installed into digital culture. I'm going to remind you of that when you send me a message at midnight going, hey, Pandy, bit drunky, thought I'd send you this, which you do about once a week. You know I have a landline. I know, I love do you it. Not you have, have a landline. Do you have my number? 
No, you should. All the important people in my in my life have it. I have to. I had to get one installed because my love of airplaning was making my family panic that I'd expired every time they couldn't get hold of me for a day. I think you are, other than my mum and dad, the only person I know with a landline. To be fair, I can't go rogue in the uncontactable wilderness so much anymore now that I have a child it's unfortunately irresponsible in case anything happens to little toad someone needs to be able to get hold of me <laughs> but I think that um I think that sounds like a really good piece but I think she's wrong that ghosting feels too rudimentary to include I think you might agree with me there going one step further than Gwendolyn Smith and I know this is a very basic and obvious thing to say and we've all been saying it for a decade but I still think the place that needs most urgent assessment in terms of guides on how we behave online is interacting with strangers specifically on Twitter I don't think it's getting any better I actually think it's getting worse and so many people I know who annoyingly are so great on Twitter are slowly in the process of just quietly exiting Twitter now because it just feels like there's a rapidly diminishing lack of politeness, sense of humour, kindness, patience, understanding and grace between strangers online. And I thought that we'd reached the nadir, but I I just recently think it's actually getting worse. I think it fits into a larger point about commentary, that we feel like now, just because we can comment on everything, that we should. And because the internet means that there's very little accountability, even sending a message rather than saying something to someone's face, it obviously encourages that sense of disconnection where you can be a lot more knee-jerk, a lot harsher and a lot less thoughtful. And actually, I think what's really important to remember is having the ability to do something and having the right to do something are two very different things and not to go too hard into the adage if you haven't got anything nice to say, but also sort of, yes. Mm. I got a tweet this week that was so ridiculous in how unfair and how uncalled for it was. I didn't know whether to find it hilarious or just really sad. And what I find most worrying, and this is why I bring it up in this conversation, because, like, female journalists getting shitty tweets from people is really not breaking news. We've talked about it before. It's something that, sadly, most women I know who write have to deal with. But the reason I brought it up in this topic about etiquette is that I find it worrying increasingly who these kinds of tweets are from. Because for years when I wrote that dating column for the Sunday Times, I dealt with a certain type of communication from men that I didn't know that was rude, patronising, shaming, sneering, mocking, sexually aggressive or threatening. And I sort of learned to just inoculate myself from it because they were just men who hated women so that was reason enough for me to just ignore it and decide that they anything they had to say was basically completely useless but what I find so confusing about the way we communicate online now is that the people who actively position themselves as the good guys the people who who actually probably are the good guys who want to make a change in the world like a good change in the world I've noticed every day how much those people have started using the language and the tactics online of the bullies that they claim to hate. Did you see Josh Glancy's column this week in the Sunday Times magazine? So there's a politician, uh, I'm not as familiar with American politics as he is, so I can't remember the name, but there's a politician in the US who um, who is on the left and she was caught on you know mic'd up saying I can't believe I'm she was like I can't believe this but 
people on the right, on the far right, are so much nicer to me than the left. Yeah. And he was like, "Can we look at this? Can we look at the fact that the supposedly yeah. really empathetic people are, you know, being it, that people always say don't they, that the people closest to your views yeah. are hardest on you because there's this idea that you've let people down." Yes, and actually, I remember hearing Lena Dunham use this phrase that I think about all the time. So when you're in a in a 12-step programme, like uh, AA or NA or OA, they say you have to keep the cross-talking to a minimum. So you're not allowed when someone is sharing, you're not allowed to kind of interrupt right. or, or add advice or whatever. And she said the right of, of have really learned how to keep the cross-talking to a minimum. <laughs> and the left are very bad for it, which... I think is true and in the case of this particular person who tweeted me what I found strange is she was a woman who I think I would like to be friends with she might not want to be friends with me definitely wouldn't want to be friends with me by the sounds of her tweet she seemed funny she seemed clever politically we seemed pretty much aligned from what I could gather but she decided knowing nothing about me or my life or my circumstances that I was the enemy and her tweet to me employed a certain language that was only deemed to humiliate and that's when I start to feel very disorientated online because I just don't understand how I don't understand how we've reached a world where that feels like a a completely fair and appropriate way of speaking to someone ultimately you and no one is a public service and that's where I think we're getting things wrong is this idea that everyone is answerable to and for everything that is impossible yeah. for one human let alone humanity i sadly think it might be too late for the debrett's etiquette guide for most adults who've been using their internet their whole lives but i do think that where we can make changes i think we can instill a sense of politeness and goodness and patience in children who will be growing up communicating in the digital world as well as the real world And actually a news story that's sort of adjacent to this one this week is that the BBC has launched a well-being smartphone app called Ownit, which is aimed at children and monitors how young people interact with friends and family online through messaging apps and uses AI to evaluate a child's mood so it can offer advice or encourage them to talk to trusted adults. It kind of monitors when a child might be in a place where they might send a message that they'd regret or an emotional message or an angry message or a rude message and instead it it will suggest to you know go outside and play or go for a walk or whatever i really hope that by the time my daughter is school age that there are lessons in internet communication and banking jesus banking my 13 year old niece has just started a new school and they're only allowed nokias and tablets that really stripped of social media yeah no smartphones no mac laptops and it seems drastic but actually she's quite relieved i think hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. According 
According to a new study, men spend more time than women admiring themselves in the mirror. Da da da! The YouGov survey of more than 2,000 adults found that 1% of women describe themselves as beautiful and 2% as good looking, whereas 9% of men regarded themselves as handsome and 7% as good looking. I feel like women have more reason to look in the mirror, more hair to fall all over the shop more makeup to smudge so I'm quite surprised by that because men look the same all the time I think a lazy way of looking at these statistics is by inferring that men have no beauty standards imposed on them and that women do I don't actually think that's true I think there is still very much a template of masculinity for men which can make them feel inadequate but I think it's more generalized and far less ubiquitous than it is for women and you can see that in the stats. Only 3% of women would call themselves beautiful or good-looking, which is very low, but only 16% of men would call themselves handsome and good-looking, which I think is still very low. So I wonder, actually, if this is country-specific and indicative of a, of a kind of national sensibility, which is it's not very polite or becoming to dwell on your looks too much, and it certainly isn't the done thing to admire your own physical appearance out loud. I think there's less of a self-esteem gender gap than um, we than is talked about culturally. So I agree with you. Mm. I don't think it's that men have nothing to worry about. What I would say is that they're aesthetically less of a shifting plate. Yes, like definitely. Women's. I can only speak of myself here, but you know that feeling when you've sort of melted off yourself. Um, whereas men. In general, I'm not saying all, wear less makeup, have less product, don't have as long hair. So there is less malleability and movability throughout the day. According to the new research, women are more likely to describe themselves as insecure and having low self-esteem than their male counterparts. One in every five women says that she is insecure compared with 16% of men. Psychologists believe that the research reflects the fact that women tend to be conditioned from a young age to be less confident than men. I also think that that's pretty low across the board, but I have always thought that confidence is a more um, easily accessible commodity for men in this society than women, only because, traditionally speaking, there are so many components of potential attractiveness for a man to draw on. So wit, intelligence, charm, power and wealth are all examples of ways that your attractiveness is valued in a man, which I don't think there is so much in women. I'm speaking in very broad traditional terms here, and I know this won't be right case by case, but I've just never been able to get my head around the fact that I know women who would describe someone as funny as Stuart Lee as their dream man, but I've never heard anyone call Sarah Millican or Victoria Wood their dream woman. And the same, I think, goes for kind of money and status. Linda Papadopoulos, anytime you hear the words new research, Linda Papadopoulos has to crop up obsessed with her like most journalists are she's brilliant she said on the new research when we do eye tracking in the mirror we see that women cut up their bodies looking in sections at their eyes hair and legs men tend to instead look less closely and focus on the whole which can be more forgiving also the female form is used much more heavily in advertising so women have lots more opportunity to compare their lips legs and breasts with idealized images this i really do agree with and I think that has been exacerbated in more recent times by porn culture with female bodies being seen through a very specific, very forensic male lens. 
But that kind of specificity and prescriptiveness around female form is almost ancient in its longevity. Betty Grable's legs were famously insured for a million pounds, which is, you know, just a classic example of that kind of fetishization of a woman's body part. And I think that women are still really working against this idea that physical form, uh, well, in Betty Grable's case, is her income and living, but also for the service of men and reproduction, and that it's the most important thing that we have to offer. And I think that that will take a really, really long time to dismantle and obliterate. And it's no wonder that it makes women feel, well, most women that I know feel like their physical form is somehow not up to scratch. There were some positive findings, though. As women get older, uh, their happiness levels increase with age. Um, I did ask my mum about this, and she said, which I think is probably more true sometimes in some of this research, that there are happy moments at every stage. Despite their um, sometimes low opinion of themselves, women are on average happier than men overall. I do think that's one of the perverse perks of ageing as a woman. From what I've seen as women get older and those kind of societal demands for aesthetic perfection fall away and instead they're just made to feel invisible (laughs) at every turn I think a lot of women use that as an opportunity to just start caring less which reminds me of that poem when I'm older I shall wear purple I know I love that poem for men I think it's the perils of dealing with your insignificance as a retired man versus an older woman who society has perhaps always reminded of her own insignificance what a nice cheery note to end on (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review on iTunes. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.